electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. It's the final two-year note auction of the year. You can't miss it. We'll bring you the results as bond markets look to salvage what started out as a pretty rough 2023. But first, our market guest is watching one key data point that he expects to finally trigger the Fed pivot. It's not CPI. We'll tell you what it is in just a moment. Plus, a pair of big biotech buyouts today. One pharma giant striking its second multi-billion dollar deal in less than a week. We'll look at whether more deal making is on the way and if healthcare is immune from regulatory scrutiny. Probably not. And tech stocks are on track to post their best year since the turn of the century. But this time, can they avoid a sharp correction after their massive run? We will debate that a little bit later on. Let's start, though, with the markets mostly higher to begin the final trading week of the year. Dom Chu making time for us with the numbers. Hi, Dom. I will always make time for you, Kelly. Let's talk about those numbers because they are green across the board for the major indices with the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ all posting fractional gains about one-third of 1% gains uniformly across the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ. And right now, we are just about near session highs in a relatively narrow trading range. At the highs of the session, the S&P 500 up roughly 19 points and then up about four points at the low. So generally positive, but the trading range, again, has been light. But the S&P is at 47.70, the Dow Industrials 37,509, and the NASDAQ Composite at 15,051. Another place that we are seeing action close near the session highs right now is in crude oil prices. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate currently $75.92, 3% gain there. Similar percentage move for ice Brent crude futures up $2.42 to $81.49. What it is is at least some talk about whether or not the bottoming is happening in energy, whether there's a value trade to be had for the coming year. Some folks are looking at whether or not supply issues are still out there and, of course, what the prospects for Fed rate cuts are. All of that's adding to the narrative, at least today. The energy sector spider up about one and a quarter percent, but natural gas prices still languishing right now, $2.56. It's been a tailwind, at least for some consumers, this winter season with milder weather, generally speaking, in most of the country. Watch energy. And then Intel, a Dow component chip maker, up about four and a half percent right now in your session highs, $50.24. The Israeli government is granting Intel $3.2 billion to help them build a new manufacturing facility, a plant in southern Israel, one of the biggest investments for a chip maker in that country. Intel shares up on that news. It's carrying the rest of semiconductors up along with it. But Kelly, an interesting move here in a stock, an old world stock for a chip maker. That's seeing quite a bit of a bid today on that foreign news. I'll send things back over to you. Uh, we were getting some questions about that one. Uh, a lot of people want to know if it can run into 2024. Maybe we'll ask Paul Meeks. Dom, I'll see you soon. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Dom Chu. Markets are still flirting with record highs as the major indices come off their eighth straight week of gains. But our next guest expects a tough start to 2024 with the S&P going down to 4,100 before it bounces back above 5,000. And the bulk of that rally, he says, may have to wait until after the president election. Joining us is Barry Knapp, Ironside's macro managing partner. Barry, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Good morning. 
Good afternoon for you, I suppose. Morning for me. Indeed. I, again, I appreciate you, you know, car carving out some time for us around the ski slopes to, to talk. So, <laughs> and we have to talk to you because you're one of the few people out of consensus right now. And the way that the last, you know, eight weeks have broken, um, in, there's massive inflows into the S&P, consensus around soft landing or no landing and all the rest of it. You sticking with your guns here? Um, to an extent, the, the, when I wrote that forecast of trading down to 4,100, that was before the Fed's earlier than expected pivot. So the probability of getting all the way down to 4,100 is a bit lower than it was when I wrote that at the beginning of, of December. But nonetheless, I do think the beginning of the year will be more difficult than you know current price actions uh, would imply. There's a, a couple things going on that I, I think are important relative to thinking about this Fed policy reaction function. First of all, if they truly have pivoted back to inflation being both the necessary and sufficient condition for rate cuts, um, one of the, the key flaws in the way that they're looking at things right now is that the disinflation we've seen is being entirely driven by goods prices. So goods, core goods prices in the CPI measure are falling at a 2.5% annualized rate. Wow. That's almost as fast as 2003 when China first got admitted to WTO. Wow. I doubt very much that's going to persist. It's a you know second wave of deflation coming out of China and as a consequence of the big move in the dollar. Uh, well, the dollar is already reversed and, and has weakened a lot since the Fed's pivot. And there's a lot of signs that um, global trade is starting to pick back up. Manufacturing could global manufacturing could come out of recession. I look at the Asian trade data, you know, the Korean numbers, Taiwanese numbers and all, and they look like they're they've all turned positive. So I wouldn't I think the, if the Fed is counting on goods deflation offsetting, you know, the struggles of housing inflation and core services, I think they're likely to be somewhat disappointed, which then means in order to get the level of easing that I think we need next year in order to open the bank credit channel that is closed in large part because of the deep curve inversion, you're going to need the unemployment rate to go up. Right. And I think it'll happen. But, but I that's think that's, not a happy you know, environment for stocks either, really. No, for sure. And I think it's interesting what you said that, you know, it, both things can't happen. If, if people think in, in manufacturing is going to turn a corner, then we should stop having core goods price deflation. And so if manufacturing turns a corner, then inflation may be stickier. So that is that kind of how you come around to it? Co correct. I mean, ultimately, for me, I think there's a possibility we could get, you know, inflation, the core below three for a brief period of time. But I think there's a very low probability we get all the way to two when Steve sends out his survey before every, Leesman, that is, before mm -hmm. every meeting. I, I'm one in one of those uh, participants that says, I don't see inflation getting to two anytime in the forecast horizon. So in, in which case, listen, I think if they got it below three, that would be fine. They should still be uh, moving some of the restrictiveness from policy. But I think the Fed will probably be reticent to do that unless the unemployment rate goes up, in which case the earnings outlook is a little overly optimistic. So exactly. It, it's, it's still a very, you know, narrow path to have everything work out the way the stock market currently speaking is of least, or, or treasury market. Speaking of Steve Leisman, Barry, stay right there for a moment. I actually want to bring him in. He's got the results of the two year. Maybe can uh, jump into this debate with us. Uh, Steve is doing his best Rick Santelli today. <laughs> How to go over.
Yeah, in, in so many ways, I am not Rick. I do not know how to put this necessarily in context. I can give you the data here, which is that uh, the high yield was 4.31%. Dealers took 186 Directs took 19.51. I mean, did you ever wish for Rick to be here to give us a grade on this? Indirect, 61.8. The bid to cover looked healthy to me, 2.68. But again, I don't put this in the kind of context that Rick can, but it seemed like a reasonably good auction. And you can kind of see what's happening. You can see yields are down relative to where they were before the auction results were uh, um, uh, uh, published. So, uh, it seems like it was a pretty decent auction. The problem, Kelly, has not been on the short end of the curve. It seems like we've been pretty successful at the short end. The question and the place where the Treasury has been treading most carefully is on the long end. Those are the ones we're watching. Those are the ones that are most interesting. And so far, so good in terms of the behavior of the longer end of the curve. Um, I don't think Barry or I were sitting here like, four or five weeks ago saying that we thought that the 10-year would be in the 390 range or the 388 range, wherever it is right now. That's been an astonishing development. It's an astonishing amount of stimulus out there. And I don't know if we have it, guys, in the back, but I do want to tell you what, what Goldman is saying just recently, uh, talking about Fed rate cuts. They do see five rate cuts next year beginning in March. And I don't know, Goldman doesn't strike me as the most reckless um, Fed forecasters on the street, and that's followed by three more. So that's eight quarter point rate cuts added up. And that's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 200 basis points of rate cuts between now and 2025. So that would bring the Fed funds rate down to 338. Um, put that in your pipe and smoke it is what I would say, Kelly. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but they're pretty aggressive. They see the Fed starting in March. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I don't, it seems like a pretty decent auction. I don't know if we'd give it maybe an A minus, B plus, something like that. And Barry, very quickly, in August, uh, concerns about Treasury supply were absolutely at the forefront. As soon as they came out with updated refunding numbers and everything, that seems to have gone away. It's just funny because even if we, with yields where they are now, if we stayed here, it would uh, be a bit of a problem long run. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, the cost of government finance is going to go up quite a bit. There's seven trillion to be refinanced next year, and there's going to be two trillion of new supply. We're running two trillion dollar deficits. The part of the, what the, the Treasury did by moving more issuance away from the back end of the belly of the curve seems like it's a good solution. The problem, though, is, as Steve pointed out, it's not the twos. But fives and sevens are a little bit more problematic. That's typically where the banking system mm. plays a big role. Mm. And the banking system can't take down treasuries as long as the curve is this deeply inverted. So, you know, that I, th I think those struggles are not over. Um, they've been shuttered aside a little bit because of the Fed pivot and, you know, this tweak that they did to issuance. But, but by no means do I think the story about struggling to absorb this supply is not going to reassert itself in 2024. It's always fun this time of year, Stephen. I'll, I'll give, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you the last word. I was just going to say that also to look back on what what didn't happen because it was the Greg Jensen, he's co-CIO of Bridgewater, but his whole point about how Treasury finance was going to be a liquidity hole on the economy and kind of suck capital out of riskier assets. It's weird how even though structurally we still have these problems, it hasn't mattered. The flows have still been healthy and, and equities have been quite strong. Well, no, I, I mean, I don't think Greg is wrong, right? I mean, if, if treasuries are indeed selling as much as Barry says they're going to sell, and I have no reason to think Barry's wrong, they are taking uh, capital or, 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 or debt uh, financing away from 
the private sector and driving up the cost. The, the thing that is the, 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 the positive side of this, maybe the silver lining around what is indeed a cloud is if you thought people, and, and Barry, by the way, is 100% right about focusing on the five to seven year, not just for banks, but also because that's where business tends to borrow at. And when you want to figure out what's going to happen with capital spending, which another thing that Barry is laser focused on, especially when it comes to productivity and, and the growth of the economy, um, that's where you want to look is in that belly of the curve area. And the silver lining here is if you thought people were going to have to refinance at 5%, when stuff becomes due, say in 2024, the idea that they're going to refinance at 390 or 380 or wherever the five-year note is right now is definitely better than it was going to be. Now, there's still people, if you were to do a, uh, a three-year chart on that five-year, which is up now, watch how good they are on the back here. Let's see if they <laughs> call that up. What you'll see is that some of this stuff was originally, look at that. I mean, what is that, zero? Is that 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.5? There's still 300, 350 additional basis points for your company treasurers to have to deal with, but it's not 500 extra basis points. So there's your silver lining. It means there's still a cliff. There's still refinancing. There's still going to be a drag on the economy from this. It just at these levels won't be as bad as we originally thought. All right, we have to go, and I'm going to do a very bad thing by asking Barry one okay. more question because I am curious <laughs> Barry, your, your S&P forecast is still pretty low. And, and what do you think are the catalysts? you think we just turned the calendar on January? It's kind of like 2022 all over again, where the top tick was the first day of the year? I, I think that's reasonably probable. Um, my forecast for the end of the year is actually was 5,100. So right. I did think that it would bounce back. And uh, my forecast for this year was that we were going to retrace the entire sell-off of 2022. So I'm not that negative. I just think the first trade out of the gate is likely lower as we come to grips with um, not getting all that robust of an earnings recovery. Um, we need probably a little bit more weakness in the economy to justify that March uh, cut. That was my forecast, too, or is my forecast that, that the Fed starts in March like Goldman. I just think we're probably both things can't be true. We can't have this super V-shaped recovery in corporate earnings. And when we had an earnings recession um, and still expect the Fed to just uh, cut the policy rate all the way back to four, open the bank credit channel. Right. There's no constraints on investment. And we just go on our merry way. Fair enough. No, and I, I, I think you aptly kind of highlight like one, one or the other of those narratives has to win for the time being. They can't both be right at the same time. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Our Barry Knapp, our Steve Leisman, I should say, along with Barry Knapp. I want to quickly get to the biotech space as well today. The XBI sector ETF has shot up nearly 40 percent in the past two months. Seem to be mostly a Fed pivot play, but we also have had a lot of deal announcements, including two more today. AstraZeneca set to buy Chinese cell therapy company Graycell in a $1.2 billion deal. Bristol Myers will acquire cancer th uh, therapy company Rayzebio for about $4 billion. And it's Bristol's second deal in just the past week. We turn to Jared Hopkins for some explanation here. He's the Wall Street Journal's health and pharma reporter. Jared, it's good to see you. First of all, this is a busy period for Bristol all of a sudden. Uh, yeah, they've got uh, a lot. They had a lot of cash on hand and they had a lot of firepower. And today's deal uh, for Raise Bio, it gives them uh, this cancer, uh, experimental cancer drug, uh, what's, what's called a radiopharmaceutical. 
And um, this is sort of a re-emerging technology for, for pharma and uh, other companies are getting into this space. But it's also on the heels of Bristol's $14 billion acquisition just last week of Karuna, which mm. is in the neurospace. So and, they've been very active. And you, you said with that one, it was more about diversifying away from their kind of core expertise in cancer uh, of recent years. But this one sounds like it's kind of more a doubling down on that. Yeah, the, Bristol already has a strong presence in cancer. Uh, they sell uh, Opdivo and Yervoy, which are these big selling uh, cancer products. However, those drugs face uh, in, the, in the coming years loss of patent protection. And this loss of exclusivity uh, has Bristol and other companies uh, in, in pharma uh, looking for uh, ways to generate new revenue to offset those declines. What would you say, Jared, you know better than anybody, I mean, the biotech possible acquisition targets are always darlings of the investment crowd, hoping that they're kind of betting on the right horse. Do you have any sense for 2024 about where we might see further deal-making activity? Yeah, as you point out, it's, it's always risky. Drug development is, is hard. Um, but uh, a lot of people are looking at cancer uh, to continue to be an area where there could be deal-making, where there's a lot of promising science. Um, Immunology has also been very hot in the past year or so, um, and there's a number of, of promising uh, biotechs and, and drugs in that space. And we're seeing neuroscience. Uh, people are talking about that as well, as we just saw, not only with Bristol, uh, but Avi recently uh, made a big acquisition also for Cerevel, uh, which has a schizophrenia uh, a drug in development. And... Um, uh, I, I don't think that we should forget about weight loss. Uh, Ozempic, Wolgovi is drawing uh, a huge interest in this in this space, uh, and not just from Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which are the big names in that space, but there are a number of other companies that are developing sort of second generation weight loss drugs, especially uh, in the oral uh, space. All right. So maybe the areas that have been active, that's where we should continue to watch uh, for sure. Jared, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Wall Street Journal's Jared Hopkins. Coming up, a firm shares have quintupled since Jan 1, but they're still down 70% from their all-time high. Mizuho's Dan Dolev is here in studio with whether you should bet on the stock for 2024. He picked it correctly this year. Plus, tech stocks wrapping up a historic rally, outperforming the S&P 2-1 this year. We'll look at what's driving those gains and whether they're due for a pullback. As we head to break, here's a glance at stocks near session highs today. The Dow's up 126 points, about a third of 1%. Same for the S&P, 47.71. The Nasdaq, over 15,000. And the 10-year note below 390 after the strong two-year auction. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. After a rough year in 2022, a firm has now soared more than 400% this year, and it's one of the best performers across the whole market. My next guest has been a long-term bull of the stock, just upped his price target to 65. It's currently under 50. After a firm's announcement to expand its partnership with Walmart, he now says the focus on a firm will shift from a buy-now-pay-later company to a full-fledged financial services firm in the next year. Joining me is Mizuho Securities, Dan Dolev. It's good to have you back, Dan. Welcome. Thank you. Um, before we kind of overly focus on a firm, where would you put this in the pantheon of fintech stocks you cover? Is it near the top with some of the best prospects or kind of where does it fall? All the way at the top. Number one. Number one. I think I was here at the end of August and and Josh was asking me, what's your top pick? And we said, you know, I said a firm and Hmm. and this was like $20 ago. So it's still all the way up there. I wholeheartedly believe it's going to go to 65. What what makes it $20 more valuable today than it was this summer? I think it's still misunderstood. So a year ago, when when I was, you know, when we were talking about it, people were worried about, you know, like the ABS securitization and their loans and higher interest rates. Like what people realize now and what they're going to realize in say six to twelve months, this is a financial services firm, not just buy now pay later. Buy now pay later is the way to get it out. It's the way to get the name out. It's a full fledged financial service services firms. There's going to be P2P. There's going to be uh, a card. There's going to be direct deposit. None of this, in my view is in the stock. Still in the stock after the run that it's had. So is the re-rating that it's had partly predicated on just simply the fact of Fed easing and, and lower rates? I mean, should, are we giving the, the company too much credit for a, a macro development in some ways? No, I think it was overly, you, you mentioned in the beginning that it's still below you know, what, what it IPO'd in, and I wholeheartedly believe that it will get there at some point. So I think it's, yeah, it's the, it's the Fed pivoting which is what's what's driven, you know, and also like these partnerships. I mean, who would have thought you wake up in the morning and all of a sudden you can use it at Walmart. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a lot more of these. It's the most innovative name in fintech period. Where's the earnings? So if I buy a share now, and I'm not sure exactly what the multiple is, but where is the earnings power coming from in the next 12 to 18 months, do you think? It's 100 percent the card because it's it's pure incremental profits, right? It comes at a higher profit than the buy now, pay later business. And like if people actually put their direct deposit linked to, into the card, so we've done research around it, there's a three to four multiplier on the usage. So you're going from, say, $2,000 per year in volume to 8000 So for a customer who's going to use, say, their debit card, I assume you're referring to, Correct. in doing direct deposit that way, do, are these people who have, are these unbanked? Do they have bank accounts? You know, I'm just curious what role, what, where in the, the sort of pipeline a firm is sitting. It, the beauty of it is it's everyone. Right. It, it could be an unbanked person. So, for example, the cash app is mostly unbanked. They're taking share from some of the cash apps of the world. You think? Yes. And but I also think that they are, you know, it, it could be anyone. It could be, you know, someone living in, in you know, in this neighborhood mm-hmm. who, who's, you know, kids use it, teenagers. So it really could be everyone. It's not just limited to one cohort. So mm-hmm. we've seen that in the research that we've done. It's pretty much very widely spread across the U.S. And other than Cash App, where do you think they're taking share from? You know, all of these customers, I have to imagine, are coming from some other part of the finance ecosystem. I think they're taking share from banks. And this is what people don't understand. So if you think about what they offer, they offer a hybrid credit slash debit card. And 
there's just so much TAM out there of basically people who don't like to, you know, carry credit and roll over and they like more control. And this is exactly that, you know, sweet spot. They offer debit if you want it, credit if you want it, paying for if you want it, everything on the go. And they're taking share from like the big banks. Two last questions that sure. I want to talk no, about, about, but there are kind of two big concerns out there. One is if it starts acting like a bank, does it ultimately become regulated like one? And the second is if is bullishness on, on a firm necessarily predicated on a decent economy and, you know, no no hard landing next year? Because I have to imagine, obviously, that all of a sudden we're talking about a very different situation. Yeah, and I agree with you on the first one. The first one is is obviously, like, that's the key risk. Is people are going to start looking at it as a bank, and, you know, that might be a drag on the multiple. Who knows? I think that as long as they, say, they stay out of becoming a full-fledged, like, direct bank with the regulation of a bank, they're fine. But, you know, I can't control the multiple, right? And, and on the other thing, a lot of it depends on, on the macro. But we're seeing, for example, like the, you know, the research we've done is, for example, student loans are not as big of a deal for, you know, for a firm versus what people thought. So there's a lot more fear in the stock than it, it all ends up, you know, being proven. Not all of it, but a lot of it ends up being proven. So wrong. you're sticking with them for 2024. Who else would you say is in kind of like the top five? I'd say top five, SoFi. Mm-hmm. SoFi has been another stock that everyone loves to hate. I, I, it's funny that you say that because a year ago, this time a year ago, everyone hated a firm and now a firm's at 50 bucks and it's going up. So I think we're, I'm, I'm almost seeing kind of the parallels Interesting. Right, between them and SoFi. SoFi, I think, is like another one that's going to, you know, we have a $15 price target. I, hold, I think that once all these fears, you know, evaporate, it's going to go up there. And SoFi's under $10 today. Anyone else you'd call out? I still really like Square or Block or, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's some issues, but I think it's like in that, you know, the, it, it, there, all the bad stuff is known and none of the opportunities known. So I think Square could actually work in 2024. Those would be my, I would say, top three. I do feel in general like there is is um, less enthusiasm for fintech and more guarded cautiousness about these stocks. And uh, maybe that's the right environment for them to keep yeah, performing. story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, thanks so much. And thanks for bringing the family by. It's fun to see them. Dan Dollar from Mizuho. Coming up is 2024. Finally, the year we'll see the media landscape reconsolidate and the emergence of the streaming bundle. We'll talk about that next here on The Exchange. Down up 140. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Eight straight weeks of gains, and we're in the green again today with a couple of trading days left in the year. The Dow's and the S&P are up nearly four-tenths of a percent right now. Around session highs, Dow's up 139, 47.72 for the S&P 500, and the Nasdaq up nearly half a percent. Ten-year yield, 389, and that's been a key level of support as well. Coming up, tech stocks are having their best year since the turn of the century, but can they avoid the same fate now as they met last time? My next guest sees opportunity in a handful of names, including one software giant that's in talks to buy a $30 billion company. Tweet me at KellyCNBC if you think you know what it is. We'll reveal it next. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back. We know tech stocks won in 2023. NVIDIA up 237%, AMD up 120%, Microsoft 56%, Apple 48%. But the last week of this year could also give some hints about who wins that race next year because we're going to talk about which apps saw the most action this holiday season. None other than Steve Kovac is here with those details. I love this because, I mean, sometimes I haven't even heard of them. Yeah, and it's not just the apps necessarily, but it's what the app data tell us. And it's really interesting to look at App Store's app rankings on Christmas Day because it's a snapshot in time of what people are buying and what they're downloading as they get those new iPhones and load them up with all their favorite apps and what accessories they're buying that need those uh, companion apps with them. So look, Kelly, the big winner, it was Meta. The Quest app was at the top of the App Store pretty much all day on Christmas Day. And that points to a lot of people activating new Meta headsets, most likely that new Quest 3 that went on sale uh, this fall and will compete with, who else? Apple coming uh, maybe as soon as uh, February, this Vision Pro. And we're going to have a two-man race here between the Vision Pro and the Meta Quest. Gaming, though, another theme on the App Store yesterday. Xbox app was at number seven. PlayStation held at between 11 and 12 yesterday. Look, this the reason those bubbled up to the top, even though these consoles have been available for three years, it was the first year the consoles were available after so many supply chain problems. It was basically impossible to find a video game console until about the summer or fall. And look, right behind Meta, though, at number two, it was Alexa. That means a lot of echoes under trees. But I always like looking at this list, Kelly, because it gives you just kind of an insight into what people are buying, what they're downloading. One fun tidbit, Threads, the Instagram answer to X, number 10, X yesterday as people activating their new phones. It was like in the 70s. Really? Yeah, I found that really interesting too. That is very telling. I wish we could still track the, the share price. Yeah, that we don't know. The yeah. impact that would have. A lot of the companies you mentioned, big tech names, any any idiosyncratic arrivers on the scene? Sony. There's a uh, there's a smart, besides the Sony PlayStation app, there's uh, this pair of uh, noise-canceling headphones they have. I'm totally blanking on the name. Yeah. But the companion app for, uh, for those headphones bubbled up to the top. It was like in the 20s, I Why think. Why do you need an app for noise canceling? That is a really, I'm sure there's some more advanced features in there, but th- it's really interesting Christmas Day. Things get skewed so much as people are unwrapping gifts, activating them with their phones. And also you, you see a lot of old, quote unquote old apps in there, but that's just because people are getting new phones and re-downloading everything. True. So you can see what they prioritize when they start their new phones. We'll talk a lot more about this next hour, but is there anything to add about the drama with Apple and this import ban right yeah. now? Or, I mean, this is just, uh, were they selling watches? They were selling the week, them no? uh, in stores. They were selling them up to the end of day on Christmas Eve. Were they? So okay. if most, if you were hoping to get an Apple Watch in time for Christmas, you probably were able to do it. But if you got an Apple gift card, for example. Mm-hmm. You're going to be out of luck if you go if you so went yesterday it's, today to it's the it's boiling Apple Store. over now. If they that's okay. correct, and but there is a caveat here. One, the cheaper Apple Watches are still for sale. The ones without that patented disputed mm-hmm. um, O2 sensor, and two. Uh, third-party stores can still sell them if they have inventory. So Got if it. they need to work through some leftovers from the holidays, they All still right. might have some. Like I said, we'll dig more into it next hour, yeah. but uh, very curious how that's affecting trends as well. Steve, sure. thank you for now. We appreciate it. My next guest does have Meta on his list for 2024, but not Apple, and he's sticking with NVIDIA. Joining me with where he's finding opportunities now is veteran tech investor Paul Meeks, currently a finance professor at the Citadel. Uh, my middle school friends are laughing, Paul, because I called it the Citadel uh, when I first moved south. So anyway, <laughs> glad to be able to redeem myself. Welcome. Great to see you. So Thanks is, for having me. What, what would your thoughts be about Apple as a, as a stock right now? Yeah, I don't think Apple is a uh, viable security present. You know, right now it's trading for about five or six times 
what Wall Street is expecting for its long-term or secular growth rate. And yes, it's a great company. Does it deserve to be a $3 trillion market cap going to $4 trillion? I think uh, going forward, it's going to be tougher and tougher to achieve those gains. We know the company has shrank uh, revenues every quarter for the past four, might even uh, unfortunately do the same thing this quarter. And so I don't see the upside, particularly after the stock has done so well in recent memory. So among the magnificent seven, among the mega cap tech stocks, it's not on my list. Very interesting. As its market cap sits right on $3 trillion today. You do like a couple of the other ones, though. Alphabet, for instance, Amazon, Microsoft. I see a lot of them up here. Meta as well. Yeah, so I like among the um, uh, Magnificent Seven. My favorite idea is NVIDIA. And I know it sounds a bit cavalier to say and not particularly creative, but here's a company. Again, we talk about the PEG ratio, PE to growth, like I just mentioned for Apple. Uh, next year, the company should probably grow its revenue and earnings per share at about 70%. And its PE ratio is not even 30 times. It's actually not that much higher than the S&P 500 that'll be lucky to grow its EPS next year at 5 to 10%. So NVIDIA is my best of the best. But because I don't see a recession in this country, and I do think that digital advertising will remain robust, I do like Alphabet, and I do like Meta. And as my number two after number one NVIDIA AI plays, I do like Microsoft. It's come a long way, but it does have a little bit of uh, more upside, in I my see, opinion. I see Microsoft, or I'm sorry, Micron on this list as well. I did get a question from a viewer, Paul, about Intel, which is about doubled this year, if I'm not mistaken. Wondering if that's a name you could bet on for next year. I don't know if you're, you know, consider yourself a chip analyst yeah. per se, but what would you say about Intel's prospects? Oh, I know the company very well. I think under uh, Pat Gelsinger, the company is better managed. It remains to be seen if their entree into outsourced manufacturing is as wonderful as the bulls claim it's going to be. I do think that they will have a little bit of bounce back in the PC business next year, which still drives Intel because PCs should have a unit ramp next year after having a couple miserable years. But right now, that stock is very expensive based on what I see is its long-term growth, both top and bottom line of probably 5 to 10% best. All so right. I would not buy it now. If I held it, maybe I'd hold it a bit longer. But I think that stock is expensive. Up almost 50% in the past three months. Let me ask you finally about a trio on here that might surprise people. Supermicro, SMCI, Mercado Libre, and Visa. What are those doing on your list? Yeah, so uh, Supermicro, I think, is a smaller cap AI play. That should do very well. Customized servers for AI customers. Uh, they struggled earlier in the year because they had the demand but couldn't get enough uh, chips from NVIDIA. Now that problem has been solved. I like Mercado Libre. You know, it's essentially the Amazon in South America, very tightly run company. And so, yes, uh, I like, as I mentioned, a couple of the Magnificent Seven. But yes, I also play in some of these smaller at least uh, domestically, less known names. And of course, uh, Visa and MasterCard, I'd like to uh, continue to take a lot of share with a lot of visibility and revenue, uh, income, and cash flow. All right, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Merry Christmas.
Paul Meeks with the Citadel. Coming up, some sectors saw big deal activity this year. Energy with Chevron and Hess and Exxon, Amgen nabbing Horizon and healthcare. Broadcom locking up VMware. Could next year finally bring massive consolidation in the media space? We'll discuss what to expect there next. Welcome back with Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount in early merger talks. Next year could be a busy one for deal making in the media space and one that potentially introduces consumers to the streaming bundle. Let's get to Julia Borston with more. Julia? Well, Kelly, media giants are talking because they're under pressure from cord cutting from a weak ad market and for competition for content subscribers as well as sports rights with the deep pocketed tech giants. So now the focus is on Paramount Global after CEO Bob Backish and Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav met in New York last week, according to sources. Now, sources also tell me that Paramount's controlling shareholder, Sherry Redstone, held talks with David Ellison's Skydance and Redbird along with Apollo. Now, all of this comes after Paramount suffered from a 14% decline in linear TV ad revenue last quarter and as it faces upcoming debt payments. Now, Warner Brothers Discovery could see some opportunity in those CBS NFL rights as well as Paramount's film studio. And if David Zaslav isn't a buyer, he will be free to sell his company as of April 8th, when restrictions from his Warner Media deal expire. Now, sources tell me that Comcast might be interested in pairing its NBC Universal, which is CNBC's parent company, with Warner Brothers Discovery to create a more powerful streaming platform. And among all of these conversations, a lot of focus is on access to NFL games. They are the most viewed content and also the most valuable assets for advertisers. The NFL could drive deals for media and tech giants and they're also all of these platforms preparing to bid for the NBA's next rights deal. And if we don't see some major deals, we should be looking out for more bundling of streaming services as these companies look for the advantages of scale to keep their consumers hooked and Kelly to minimize churn. That's interesting what you just said there, that maybe it's an, a bit of an either or, either consolidation or we see more streaming bundles. Maybe, you know, I, I take your point that if they don't all consolidate under one existing product that, you know, maybe they all have to offer some kind of compelling bundle or maybe the bundle itself is a way of, uh, you know, a, a, sort of floating a trial balloon. I don't know, but that's an interesting way to think about well, it. Well, I would say I would say it's actually perhaps both. I think we will see some bundling and some consolidation. So if you look at some of the smaller assets, for instance, we saw Stars just last week complete its spinoff um, from Lionsgate. Stars is a company that successfully took a linear network and profitably turned it into a streaming platform. Stars could bundle more linear TV assets, the likes of BET, um, which is something that in, that we did hear that at one point Paramount was interested in selling off, or the History Channel taking these linear assets, combining them and streaming them direct to consumer and figuring out how to do that in a profitable way for some of these smaller assets that have been really reliant on the linear business. So I think there we could see some true consolidation but then when it comes to these bigger companies, the bigger they are, the harder it will be um, to complete a merger from a regulatory standpoint. So we'll see more bundling even within Disney. So, of course, we'll see Disney really playing up the bundle of Disney Plus, Hulu and ESPN Plus. Um, and then we'll see if we see more bundling of the likes uh, of Max and, say, Netflix, which we've seen um, Verizon do for right. some of its subscribers. It's also interesting because this this 2023 was in a way supposed to be the year of media deals and it was crickets. 
Well, I think there's a key factor that's really driving these talks right now, and that comes down to the fact that Sherry Redstone really controls Paramount Global, right? She oh, she owns National Amusements, which controls 80 percent of the voting shares. And up until now, she hasn't seen an offer that's made it worthwhile for her to do more than sell off a couple little bits and pieces here. She did sell off Simon & Schuster. She did have some talks about selling BT. They decided to retain that. But now she has these upcoming debt payments. Um, and there's this question of sort of whether now might be the time where she feels under pressure to either sell all of Paramount, which might be harder from a regulatory standpoint, but she, if she can't do that, she could sell um, National Amusements, which is a lot less expensive and would allow someone, whether it's an Apollo um, or a Redbird, come in and buy that that controlling stake in Paramount, which would then enable them to perhaps split off parts. So Sherry Winston has a lot of power right now, a lot of different options, and the decisions she makes could really be the catalyst to set off a lot of movement in the M&A space and media. Great point. She is one to watch. As always, Julia, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Julia Borston reporting. Coming up, luxury home sales jumped 9% and hit the highest third quarter median sales price on record, according to Redfin. But our next guest is seeing some signs of softening in that segment. We'll talk to the CEO of Property Markets Group about what that portends for 2024 when we come back right after this. What was my ambition when I was starting out? Survival. I love the word ambition. Ambition is passion. It's a key ingredient of greatness. To me, ambition is being undaunted by the impossible. I'm ambitious for the nation. I'm ambitious for its people. I'm ambitious for my people. My ambition has always been to seek the truth. To learn as much as I possibly could. To make an impact. I believe in dreaming big. I always have. My ambition is to show gratitude. <laughs> ambition. It's got America written all over it. Ambition really is the foundation of capitalism. I wanted to do great things in this country. My ambition is to do very well in business and to take those profits and recycle back in society to try to make the world a better place. Everything can be a reality. I see ambition everywhere. In many ways, ambition, human ambition, is what drives the world. Welcome back to The Exchange. The latest Case-Shiller data this morning showing home prices are still on the rise with prices in 20 biggest metro areas jumping almost 5% from a year ago. And that was before a lot of the rate declines hit. This was October data. That was the biggest annual increase already this year as supply remains, supply remains tight amid high mortgage rates. Detroit, by the way, saw the biggest metro area price gains. But it's a different story in the luxury segment where inventory actually rose in the third quarter, according to Redfin, though sales in big cities also rose with cash-rich buyers snapping up new construction properties. My next guest knows a thing or two about this market. Joining us now is Kevin Maloney. He is CEO of Property Markets Group. They're a luxury real estate developer in New York, Miami, other big metro areas. Kevin, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You see some softening in the luxury space? Uh, sure, we sure do. Um, there's been a lot of inventory, a lot of new projects launched, and certainly in the South Florida market. And we're seeing a little bit of softening. Our deposit structure has changed a bit and softened. And, um, you know, interest rates are certainly not helpful. So uh, we are seeing softening in the marketplace. Um, unlike the single family home market where inventory is an all time low and people really can't be selling with those low mortgages and people can't afford to be really buying where you're going to see strong demand in the luxury high rise condominium space. We're seeing a bit of softening. Yes. I was going to ask if these are mostly condos you're talking about. Yes, yes, it's usually, it's, it's really urban infill, high-rise luxury condo space. 
And why would those, is it both you know, too much supply and less demand, or is it simply too much supply? No, I think demand is still pretty consistent in the marketplace. I think that the supply is, has grown substantially. You know, frankly, many of these condominiums that were launched in, in 22, that are sold through the second half of 22 and 23, um, are still in the marketplace selling through standing inventory or new condos have uh, actually entered the marketplace. So it's mostly on the supply side of the curve. And what price points are we talking? Well, the price point, well, <laughs> different projects, different different price points, but uh, in our segment, we're kind of that uh, $5 million and up, and a lot of our product is, uh, you know, $20 million and up. Wow. So, so much of this supply that came online in 2022, as you referenced, what was driving that? What was fueling that? Well, in 22, we, if you look at where SOFR was, it was 18 BIPs in, in this 18 months ago at this time, and SOFR is now, I think, what, 530. So um, you had cheap money or free money in a marketplace. Um, uh, sales were consistently strong, and, and developers were really able to get uh, that debt financing to get out of the ground. That constitutes the really the remaining of the standing inventory. And then with low interest rates and a hot economy, you have a whole bunch of new product entering the marketplace. I think that product is going to be probably sitting for a period of time before it gets into the ground, mostly because credit markets are a little tougher today. So what do you think is going to happen with all of this inventory? Well, I think it's it's the good news is a lot of it won't get built. Actually, in 23, only about 10% of the buildings that were planned actually got a shovel in the ground and are, 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 are being built. Hmm. And that's mostly a function of interest rate and rising costs, right? We're, we're now, because of what the Fed did, we're in a pretty much a flat cost environment, which is great for development. And we're talking about maybe 75 basis points over a few meetings in 24, I think that's certainly going to help the sales side. And um, I, I don't know if it's going to have a material effect. So I don't know that supply is going to really increase in 24. So if demand is consistent, we'll eat up a lot of that inventory. And then we'll probably see in late 24, early 25 price increases yet again. Well, that's fascinating. Kevin, thanks for outlining some of that for us. People who might have noticed it wondering what's going on. And of course, we, it always seems to come back to the central bank. <laughs> Appreciate you joining us today. We'll check back in soon. Kevin Maloney with the Property Markets Group. Go get a deal if you're in the $20 million market. That does it for The Exchange. Next on Power Lunch, the C-Suite sweet spot. Which CEOs were top of the class this year? Dom is in for Tyler. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.